0: About his book, Bias, Racism, and the Brain, how we got here, and what needs to happen. Jason Greer, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, John. It is a pleasure to be with you today. I'm super excited to have a nice conversation around your book, Bias, Racism in the Brain, how we got here and what needs to happen. Super important topic. We're going to have a lot of fun uh, pulling this apart and really dissecting it and talking about this important issue and really what we can do about racism in the world around us and in organizations. Before we get started, I just wanted to share Jason's bio with everybody. Jason Greer is passionate about helping companies and organizations who are dealing with dynamic workplace challenges to overcome their internal struggles in order to remain union-free while improving productivity and profits. Over the past 16 years, he has been privileged to turn Greer Consulting, Inc. into one of the top employee and labor relations consulting businesses in the United States over the last 17 years. He has become an international bestselling author for his book, Bias, Racism in the Brain. He is passionate about helping businesses and organizations in multiple industries overcome their employee and labor relations challenges. Wonderful. You're joining us from uh, St. Louis area. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. Uh, Before we dive on in to the topic for today, anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background or personal context story? Uh, And then we'll get going with talking about your book.
1: Yeah, not a problem. I'm also a former board agent with the National Labor Relations Board, which is where I learned the whole labor relations, labor law process, which is uh, really was the foundation to creation of my company. So been around, seen a lot of stuff, man. So (laughs) it's been a good job. And
0: that's a a high profile kind of a a, a position in the National Labor Relations Board. And uh, they do a lot of important work. And it's super complex (laughs) and and messy. Super messy and complex and, and challenging for sure. Uh, so I, I'm sure you'll you'll be sharing some of those insights and experiences with us if, as we go throughout this conversation. Well, absolutely. Why don't we start with you just sharing with us a little bit about why you wrote this book and why now? What, um, what went into the writing of this book, and then we can start to actually pull it apart and and talk about some of the different components that you uh, present in the book. Absolutely.
1: So, I co-wrote the book with my best friend and my, you know, most trusted mentor in the world, uh, Phil Dixon, who is one of the foremost leaders in terms of the neuroscience of leadership. So, Phil always comes from the perspective that the brain is guiding us in terms of the stories that are going on, you know, internally. And like so many folks, um, and I'm going to talk about the George Floyd moment here. Like so many folks, I was heartbroken, really destroyed for weeks on end after seeing the initial video of uh, former officer Chauvin uh, choking George Floyd. And like so many other folks, I was in shock. But I don't know if I was in shock as much about what happened because there are the string of just videos that have been going on for years of African-American people um, dying at the hands of police officers. But I think what I was shocked by was the way that this particular video seemed to resonate across, you know, races, across uh, geographic borders. I mean, you just see people from around the world who were literally caught off guard by the severity of this. So I remember talking to Phil as this George Floyd moment uh, really started to matriculate into the Black Lives Matter protests and protests that were happening around the country, if not around the world. And I was asking the bigger question of what can I do? Because like so many African Americans, we were being inundated by calls from very well-meaning friends, associates, people might that in, in the case of my wife and I that we went to church with, who were asking the question of what can they do to be a part of this conversation? Um I remember calling Phil and I said, Phil, you know, it's one thing to go and speak to people, to speak to organizations about this. But what if we created something where I talk about my experience as, a, as an African-American man and we, you know, we don't create a book that's just geared around the idea of white guilt? Because let's be honest, there's so, so much stuff out there, you know, just generated toward um, the idea of, of creating white guilt. I wanted to get away from that. I wanted to get this conversation where we could take my experiences and we can help people to funnel it through the thing that we know we have in common, which is our brain. So we took my stories and combined them with Phil's knowledge of the brain. And what we essentially did was we understand from a brain perspective, John, I'm not going to understand where you're coming from in terms of your story, unless I have some form of sympathy that leads into empathy, meaning that you take me through your story. You help me to understand the impact of whatever it might be. Maybe it was your childhood. Maybe it was, you know, experience in school. Maybe it's experiencing your work, your business, whatever the case might be. Once I hear that story and you take me through that story in terms of how it impacts you, my brain starts to change. But I'm not going to get to a point of empathy until I understand where you're coming from. And that was really the sole focus of this book. And to be brutally candid with you, John, we set out to create a book that we could pass out to some clients that maybe we could have some great conversations in our personal lives. We had no idea that it was going to take off in the way that it did Um, within I think maybe two days, we were already Amazon number one bestsellers, and then over the course of a month, we became international bestsellers. Um, So I'm hardened by the fact that people want to engage in this conversation around diversity. I love sort of the push-pull dynamic that's happened as a result. We've had people who've said, man, this is the best book we've ever read, and it's, it's just generated so many great conversations. But on the other side, I've had people from various backgrounds, whether it's members of the LGBTQ plus community, whether it's um, uh, our Latino brothers and sisters, whatever the case might be, who have said, this is a good book because it spoke about your experience as an African-American man, but what about my experience? And my answer to them is, then get out there and write the book. Get out there and tell your story because we wanna talk about how we're going to start to break down some of the dynamics around racism we can't break those dynamics down until people start to hear your perspective. The more perspectives they hear, and then you're being open to the perspectives that they have to share, that's how we start to break down this thing called race.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. And you're absolutely right. We need more people to tell their stories. And I understand how much of a burden that is, uh, and, I, and I, I don't want to place the burden uh, on the LGBTQ plus community, or the sure. Black community, uh, or the the Latinx community, whatever. Like, why should systemic racism or bigotry be the responsibility of the oppressed <laughs> to try to to try to explain, you know, and to try to help people understand? So, I, I I get that, and I know that that is a challenge. But yet, to your point, unless we hear more of those stories, uh, right. it's going to be really hard for for many people to really understand and to empathize, um, with the plight and, and especially those who may be very disconnected and they may not have personal experience with people from these different populations. Right. And and so then how do they form their opinions? How do they form their, their thinking? It's, it's influenced by media. It's influenced by all the implicit biases and stereotypes that they have swirling around and their, the, you know, the culture around them and, and, and what they consume we we have to disrupt that somehow, and and the most powerful way to do that is through those stories. Uh, so I, I think that's a really great point. I would love to see more uh, people uh, share share those stories any chance that they get, uh, so we can have Absolutely. that kind of an impact. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about the neuroscience of all of this, um, because we do have implicit biases. Uh, you know, th- there are overt prejudices, and there are overt um, types of, of, uh, negative things that we do and say towards those around us. Uh, and I, and I recognize that and I don't want to minimize that or downplay that, sure. uh, but, but it seems like the real heaviness of all of this comes through the, just the small day-to-day actions, um, right. that are often unintentional and inadvertent from people just going through their day-to-day lives not even recognizing they're doing it who probably would be exactly. mortified if they realized that what they were doing was having that kind of a negative impact and but it's all this this implicit uh unconscious bias that's just in us and unless we find a way to disrupt it um and to kind of reprogram our brains then it's going to continue uh, and it's going to continue to influence how we set up the policies practices and procedures, the systems within organizations, within communities, and we're just going to continue to perpetuate the problems. Um, So tell us a little bit more about the neuroscience of this, especially as it relates to bias um, and what we can do about disrupting that.
1: Yeah, not a problem. So I'm going to say one thing that I think often gets neglected, if not just completely ignored as we talk about bias. Bias is actually a very good thing. Look, our brains are designed, and when we talk about neuroscience, I'm just going to go ahead and and encapsulate this in one basic term called the brain. The brain itself is a safety mechanism because consider this, you're on the outside of Utah, I'm on the outskirts of St. Louis, and yet we're sitting here having this conversation and this would, you know, through Zoom, this would not have been possible 50, 60 years ago. It would have been the stuff of science fiction. Society in itself has evolved to the point where we are one in the same with technology. We, we can definitely agree with that. But on the other side, the one thing that has not evolved is our brains, because our brains still believe that we are walking around in the day and age of our ancestors. And the way that our ancestors governed their lives, it was based around living amongst people who are considered to be part of your clan, which from a neuroscience standpoint, from a brain standpoint, are called your in-group. When I'm in the presence of my in-group, my in-group is anybody who looks like me, talks like me, thinks like me. John, therefore, they're me. I get the dopamine effect that courses through my brain, courses through my body when I'm in the presence of people who are just like me because it's a matter of survival because those people who are just like me are going to be responsible for helping me to get food, but they're going to protect my physical self. They're going to protect that of my family. I feel good when I'm in the presence of people who are just like me. But on the other side of that, when you come into um, when you interact with people who aren't like you, this is what we call our outgroup. These are people who don't look like me, don't talk like me, don't think like me. Therefore, they're not me. When I'm in the presence of my outgroup, cortisol kicks in. Cortisol is a stress hormone, and it produces one of two effects: either I fight or I run. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, people are going to run because your body, your brain, is designed to keep you safe. The challenge is. That when we talk about bias, it's our biases that have been built within our brain over the millennia that in effect keeps us safe. The problem is your brain is a liar because your brain is consistently telling you a story about the outside world that might not be true. Your brain thinks that the saber-toothed tiger is somewhere lurking around the corner and it's going to jump on, it's going to grab you. But there's no saber-toothed tiger anymore. We know that, but the brain doesn't recognize that. So the challenge comes in. That these biases that we have in our brains look, they're governed according to what your brain design, what your brain deems as the primary story that's going to keep you safe. So you will have somebody, I'll give you an example. So I'm 6'3, 275 pounds, big dude, um, weightlifter. I just exist, right? And when I say I just exist, I'm not always aware of my size relative to other people. One particular day, I'm walking through Walmart. I'll never forget this. And I, I'm, John, have you ever heard of the term called the clutch? Are you familiar with that? Yeah. So the clutch is basically this. If, and it's been my existence since I was 11, 12 years old, as far as what I can, was conscious of. When I walk past women who in many cases happen to be white, they will clutch their purses when I walk past them as though I'm going to steal their purse. I used to think that that was just a matter of racism that they didn't like black people. But as I started to learn more about really what we call not unconscious bias, but our non-conscious bias because we're not really aware of the things that are going on yet our brains are always online 24 seven. So our brains are aware of the story that it's telling us about the outside world. So when I walk past women who happen to be white and they clutch their purse, my first instinct is, well, they're racist.
0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Academy. Courses, micro-credentials, and certificates to upskill and reskill for the future of work. All HCI Academy courses, micro-credentials, and certificates are designed, developed, and delivered by award-winning and internationally renowned scholars, educators, thought leaders, executives, and practitioners. Our courses, micro-credentials, and certificates will help you make your mark on the future of work and make an immediate impact in your organization's. We look forward to having you join us.
1: Well, as I started to learn more about the brain, I started to realize that maybe they're not conscious of what they're doing. So I'm walking through Walmart one day. I'll never forget this. And I'm just not aware. I'm just going in because my wife had sent me into Walmart to get something. I can't even remember what it was. And there was this woman who happened to be white who was walking past me. So I'm 6'3", 275. She might have been maybe five feet, let's say 120 pounds. Okay. So I walk past her and she clutches her purse. Well, I keep going and it bothered me, but I decided to have what we call a social experiment on the spot social experiment. So I found her three, three hours down and I walked up to her, just tapped her on her shoulder. She turned around and just said, ma'am, I'm not trying to bother you. I'm not trying to steal your purse, anything of that nature. I just have a quick question for you. She goes, what's that? You know, why is it that when I walk past you, you clutch your purse? She goes, I didn't clutch my purse. And I go, no, ma'am, really? You clutched your purse when I walked past you. I saw it. She goes, I didn't clutch my purse. I said, ma'am, I'm not trying to get argumentative with you because at this point her face is going red, her voice is raising, I wasn't trying to call any attention to us. And I said, ma'am, I'm just, I'm not trying to fluster you, I'm just telling you that when I walk past you, you clutch your purse. She goes, I didn't clutch my purse. I said, ma'am, look down. She looks down and guess what she's doing, John? She's clutching her purse. She looks up at me, her eyes tear up. She turns, you know, she's even redder than what she was before. And she goes, I'm so sorry. Now, John, she truly believed that she was not clutching her purse. Yet she was. So there are a number of things that could have been going on in terms of the stories that are playing on in her brain. Does she have an encounter with somebody who looked like me? Does she have a negative encounter with somebody who looks like me? And therefore, she's put in a position where she needed to protect herself. These are the things that are at play on every, you know, 24-7, 365 days. These are the stories that are going through our brains. We're not even aware of it. So when we talk about unconscious bias training, I think unconscious bias training in theory makes sense. But the reality is our brains are never offline. Our brains are on 24-7. So our brains are never unconscious because if you punch me and you knock me out, I'm offline. So that's why I say that when we talk about unconscious bias training, when we talk about unconscious bias, we need to refer that to more of, a, more of a more actual term, which is non-conscious bias. I'm just not aware of the things that I'm doing. And it's really when we start having these discussions, when we're honest, when we're open with how we feel, then we start becoming more aware of our bias.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And thank you for sharing that experience. Uh, Would you, would you term that clutching uh, as a microaggression? Uh, You know, there's so many things that happen due to the non-conscious biases that we have going on that we may do or say in it, you know, unintentionally without real awareness that we're doing it. In my mind, that is a good example of a microaggression, but uh, perhaps you have a different way of looking at it.
1: Um, I will tell you how it made me feel in a moment. Yes, it hurt my feelings, (laughs) so I'll say that was a microaggression. Um, There are things that happen all the time. I I think when we get into the idea of microaggressions, I think it really comes down to the impact that your behavior, whether you're aware of it or not, the impact that your behavior has on somebody else. Right? Um, Definitely microaggression, but there's another side of this: is that people of color and people who are deemed as minorities have been living with microaggressions for so long that it sort of becomes. Part for the corpse, right? And there were things that happened. Like I'll give an example. My wife is a forensic scientist for a, um, a police department, for uh, the state police. There are things that happen in her job that she just gets used, she got used to probably by age 10. So it might impact other people, but it doesn't necessarily impact her. There are things, like I was a victim of cross burnings when I was 17 years old in 1991. And I'll never forget that um, the uh, police department telling me and telling my parents, well, we don't think that this is the act of racist people because we know these young men and we know them to be good, Christ-fearing, Christ-loving men. We just think that these are people who are just they a little frustrated because, you know, you all are coming into the town and changing the complexion of the town. And change takes time. Now, he, in his heart of hearts, will tell you that he was only saying this because he's trying to make the situation better by giving us perspective about the people who were hurting us. But the reality was, they hurt us. You burnt crosses and protested my family. That hurts. So I don't want to hear your explanation, right? Um, but he, from, in terms of from his perspective, felt like he was trying to do the right thing by everybody. So it's just one of those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess that, that reminds me of why it's so important for us to, to keep in mind. I mean, we can't fully understand our blind spots. That's why they're blind spots, right? (laughs) Um, but we can try, we can try to listen to people and we can try to observe, um, when, what we do or say may hurt somebody. Um, and whether it was our intention or not, we can proactively try to make restitution. We can try to apologize. We can, you know, sincerely um, apologize for the, the pain that we may have caused. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I, I go throughout my day and I'm sure that I do dumb things that are insensitive or hurt people's feelings in ways that I'm not even aware of. I sure. hope, I hope that they'll come and talk to me about it. And if they do, I promise I'm going to try my very best to not get defensive, but to, Mm -hmm. to listen and to learn and to, to apologize and to try to make it right the best I can. And hopefully it can be, you know, an an opportunity to develop a deeper relationship with that person. Um, Absolutely. That, that, but that is challenging, right? It's it, because we do, like you said, we're hardwired towards surround, you know, uh, this bias towards surrounding ourselves with people who are like us. We're hardwired to get defensive when people, call us on something we're hardwired in all these different ways um, that have served a purpose, you know, in terms of evolutionary psychology, but in, in, in today's modern world may not be as beneficial. Uh, And, and it it is what it is. So we have to, I have to be patient with myself. I have to be gracious and patient with others around me. Uh, And I, but I also have to be committed to do the work, to try to, to make things better and hold myself accountable Uh, And so, and, and so it, again, it doesn't, like, it's wonderful that you can have that grace to to acknowledge the pain and say, I was deeply hurt by what these, these police officers told me um, to acknowledge that, but also have the grace and the compassion and the the patience to say, but I can also see that they were trying, they were trying to diffuse the situation. They were trying the best way they knew how. Um, And, and when we can do that, then it opens up the opportunity to that perhaps that that individual who really stepped in it, they right. might actually be able to learn from it and move forward and do a little bit better the next time. Um, I, I mean, it's just such a challenging dynamic, and and people, are really struggle with this and and are concerned about about wading into these waters of of trying to better understand um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and trying to do better in their organizations. You know, I, I get it. I get it's messy. I get that it's challenging. I get that, uh, you know, sometimes on both sides, you're going to feel taken advantage of or, or piled on or whatever. Like I get that, but man, it doesn't take away the necessity, you know, for us to, to really do the work. A hundred percent because it's scary work. Let's be real. It's loving work, but it's scary work. It's
1: scary from the perspective that you don't want to say anything wrong. And the problem, I think, because you had alluded to this earlier um, during the intro, when we talk about the uh, uh, perspective of the media, because I often hear people say, well, it's the media that's dividing us. It's the media who's doing us. Well, I don't remember the media being present when Emmett Till was killed, right? I don't remember the media being present when um, Black people were being lynched while white people had um, picnics, right? Um, and, and ate the sandwiches while Black bodies were being uh, uh, hung from treats. I think that what we need to be careful about is the idea that, you know, I often hear um, people, I was on a plane, I'm on the road about 200 days out of the year, so I spend a lot of time on airplanes, a lot of times speaking to people who, unfortunately, you never speak to again, right? You never see again. But I remember this gentleman telling me that he felt like um, when Donald Trump was in office, that racism was actually getting, you know, racism was dying, and that the race relations were actually getting better because of the work that Donald Trump was doing. But it was the media that twisted his work, twisted his words, twisted his intentions, and we were left with this idea that Donald Trump was a racist who, you know, catered to racist organizations. And I'm listening to this gentleman, and my first instinct was, Look, I remember at age 17, listening to David Duke actively discuss with me, with my parents, actively discuss how we were credits to our race, but understanding that because we were credits to our race, we were still second, we we were still, um, I keep wanting to say secondary, but we were nothing compared to that in terms of the strength and vitality of the white race, Right. And much of the language that David Duke used, I heard through politicians, I heard through various things that happened between 2016 through 2020. But again, this comes back to the perception of, look, we can blame the media all day long for a multitude of things, and the media is what it is. But I think that we also need to learn how to be accountable for the things that we say. We need to learn to be accountable for the things that we do. If somebody calls you a racist, confirmation bias is gonna say, well, I can't be racist. I have black friends, which is a common refrain. Well, let's dig into that. Do you have black friends? Do they come over to your house? Do they hang out with your kids? You know, Do their kids hang out with your kids? Do they know your wife? Do they know your partner? How much do you know about them beyond just some of the surface level details, right? I think that what we need to do a better job of in this country, but I say in this world is we need to start being honest about who we are. The reality is we can blame everybody for everything that's going bad in this world. But what part are you playing in terms of what is actually happening within your world? Because one of the things that we talk about with our book is you need to master, work hard toward mastering your story because when you understand your story the interpersonal dialogue that you have on a 24 seven basis, that's when you can begin to make some incremental changes in terms of your world,
0: but also the impact that you have on other people. So well said, Jason, this has just been a really great conversation. I know at the time, and I'm going to have to let you go here in, in just a few sure. minutes, which is super sad to me because I want to keep going and going and going. <laughs> um, and I would love to have you back anytime and we can continue the dialogue. Uh, but before we wrap up that. for today, I would just love uh, for you to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work and where they can find your book. Uh, and then give us the final word on the topic for today.
1: Absolutely. You can find my book on Amazon. Um, I will tell you to reach out to me on LinkedIn at Jason, Jason.Greer, I believe it is, or on Instagram, Jason.Greer, as well as on Twitter at Labor Diversity. Here's what I'm going to say to you folks. For those of you who are out there doing this critical work called just trying to be human, Forgive yourself when you get it wrong, but don't stop just because you got it wrong. Keep moving forward. I mean, the thing that we have in common is our brain, but there's also another perspective that we have in common, and that's a genuine desire to make the world a better place for you, for the ones you love, and especially for our children. Love each other. Embrace each other. Forgive each other, but keep moving forward because that's all we can ever ask for.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Jason can do for you. Check out the book and the many other opportunities to engage and, and to, to leverage the resources and the, the experience and the expertise that Jason brings to the table. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.